You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. I'd firstly like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. I'm broadcasting over the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation, and this is where I produce this show on. Genocide and colonization are ongoing, and so is First Nations resistance. First Nations sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, an intro to me, I'm Iris, a white queer trans settler, and today's show is going to be on the punitive pandemic failures of the state and towards harm reduction. I want to start by saying we are in a serious, deadly global pandemic. Taking precautions is very necessary. But I'm increasingly seeing the response leave so many behind and is causing all sorts of harm. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I want to say that the show only touches on some issues with many left out. I'm particularly thinking of people inside prisons at the moment who are incredibly isolated, have no internet access and have gone for six months plus without visits. Yeah, and we're seeing the looming threats of outbreaks inside and head to COVID-19 prison watch net.au for info and pressure points and in terms of everything that's going on with the carceral punishment mindset i'd like to also reflect on how that stems from invasion and the settler colony which was founded on a smallpox pandemic introduced by the british white government and yeah ask how as a settler i benefit from that and what can be done every day in solidarity In terms of the program, I'd like to invite listeners to think about some questions. How can we imagine a harm reduction grassroots community health approach instead of a punitive cop-heavy state one? Can we imagine a world without widespread capitalist precarity? Access to basic needs are guaranteed and oppressive systems and hierarchy are being dismantled. What can we do towards struggling for that world? We're going to be hearing from a number of speakers on today's program, Pretty Packed Program. We're going to be hearing from Tiara on the harm and dangers of quarantine and punitive barriers to support for those living alone. Then we'll be hearing from Hope, who will, who will hear stories from a frontline precarious worker and nursing student. Then we'll hear from Polly on living solo care and bosses forcing workers to work in unsafe conditions. And finally, we'll hear from Star Lady on the significant mental health impacts of the restrictions, problems with policing, and failures in the LGBTIQ services space. A content note for psychological distress for the whole show. Reach out to a friend if you need to. First up, we hear from Tiara. Uh, my name is Tiara. I'm in my 30s. I'm being based on Wondry and Wurong land for the last four years or so. And in the before times, I was doing a lot of work in the arts and commu- uh, cultural industry. But as many of you probably know, that industry is pretty much collapsed for itself due to COVID. So I'm just getting by. Yeah. Cool. So in terms of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of big assumptions by the state around the home as a safe space. And in terms of isolation and assumption, is that a place that no one needs to have people around, especially for those who have lived alone? And that ignores a lot of people who have support structures not centered around the home. And we're seeing a lot of significant psychological distress, especially in another stage of lockdown. How, how have you found navigating these things through the various waves of the pandemic? 
So I was in mandatory quarantine in mid-March because I'd come home from traveling overseas. So I was in my apartment for two weeks. And what a lot of people don't really realize about the quarantine is that it's much stricter than a lockdown. And I was not allowed to really even leave my front door because I don't have my own personal balcony or backyard or anything. I live in an apartment. And so the only time I could leave the house was to get tested. And even though I tested negative, that didn't end the quarantine early. And so I was pretty much stuck in home trapped within the four walls and I basically had like a full-on mental breakdown and what exacerbated the breakdown was that I didn't even know whether it was legal for me to get mental health care or not or whether that would count as breaking quarantine and I'll get arrested and instead of getting help and eventually the answer was like possibly but that took a bit of wrangling to figure out and there's the feeling that my needs are criminalized was excruciating and the old I somehow lucked out of not having cops at my door and I think that's really just an accident of timing like if I'd come home a few days later that would have happened I remember when the hotel quarantine started up which was kind of halfway through my own quarantine and I could tell from a distance that it was going to be an epic failure because already from like day one the people in hotel quarantine were reporting about not having enough proper food and not having proper sanitation and you know as terrible as it was being stuck in my apartment. At least I was surrounded by my own things and had a little more control about what I could eat. And what was especially frustrating was seeing all of this play out and talking about trying to warn people about, hey, you can't really please a pandemic. This seems like it's going to be a bad idea. This is going to hurt more than it will help. And so many people thought I was over-exaggerating it or being paranoid or, oh, but the pandemic is more important, da da da. And then to see basically all my fears kind of come true, especially with like the public housing pattern quarantine mm. and then with all the the fact that so almost all the cases right now can be traced back to hotel quarantine and to see basically like yes this is what I had to go through and none of you guys believed me the first time and now you see like the worst case scenario play out it's been it's it's been a lot and to see that the Dan Andrews and company, their entire approach has been, well, let's add more police. Well, let's criminalize this. Well, like, oh, can I stay at a friend's house uh, for quarantine? Nope, you have to make you have to make sacrifices. And it's like, dude, this is this is about people's sanity and mental health and being able to survive a lockdown. Like, I tried to, I, I had another mental breakdown just around the time stage three started. And I tried to get myself into a park, which is supposed to be like a halfway place between home and hospital for mental health is, you know, it's often a way for you to avoid being hospitalized and but be in a caring environment. But after so many referrals, um, they said, oh, we're not taking any community referrals for PARC because of COVID-19. You have to come to the hospital first. And the CAT teams could do nothing for me. Like, all they could do is tell me to take a cold shower and go for a walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was only only uh, luck that I managed to find a friend that was willing to have me move in. Like, I'm in this friend's house right now. I got a letter from my GP saying, Yes, we need, uh, Tiara does need to live somewhere else. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Picking up again the policing the pandemic um, point that Andrew's government's been like a dominant approach to the pandemic. We're seeing more and more police powers to target people on an oppressive basis. Um could you talk further about your concerns with that alongside what you're saying, which is that services have been cut down or unavailable to large sections of the community because of like racism in terms of 
I guess there's around borders and that we're seeing a lot of people abandoned in terms of visa status. Yeah, I just feel like trying to use police powers to measure pandemic is already absurd in the best of cases. But especially during, given like we're in the height of the Black Lives Matter movement right now. And so many cities around the world are starting to reevaluate their need for police enforcement. And also you see kind of the flip side, some cities, uh, the police force have used COVID-19 curfews and restrictions as an excuse to try and come after black people protesting, you know. And to, for, for Dan Andrews and his government to decide that the best thing to do in the height of all of this is to add more police, you know, and also, hey, you know, let's also find the organizers of the Black Lives Matter rally in Melbourne, even though there have been like no cases linked to that rally. And it was just like, dude, read the room. <laughs> First of all, read the room. And whenever his response, when presidents asked him about like, well, who's going to enforce on this and how this is be enforced? And he's basically gone like, well, I don't want to tell the police how to do the job. Like that is literally part of your duties is to, tell, is to like tell the police how to do their job because right now the police have total impunity. Now, especially now with the state of disaster where they have even more increased powers and there's hardly any accountability. And, you know, talking about criminalizing people for trying to survive, there, has been, there hasn't been as much attention on the employers forcing mm. their employees to go to work, even though a lot of the outbreaks are coming from workplaces like aged care and yeah. abattoirs. But it's like, oh, the employers can still ask their employees to come in sick, but nothing happens to them. But, oh, let's, you know, penalize the employees who have precarious work and still need to go work anyway because they can't get money any other way. And what has been especially frustrating is seeing too many of my friends and peers and network who would normally be all like, oh, yes, a cab or yes, you know, Black Lives Matter. I'm trying to be like, oh, but anything is okay, which is the pandemic. Like, oh, let's add on to criminalization. And oh, my God, this scene, all of that has been disheartening. Mm. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's, it's like sometimes in a situation where the state mobilizes this sort of war rhetoric and it's like if you're critical of the state you're for people dying for, for the pandemic it like yeah seems to assault yeah. a lot of critique yeah and i've gotten that myself like saying that oh you must not care about people dying because i have serious concerns about the policing of the pandemic and it's really we uh, it, it's, it's frustrating it, and the other thing too it's that those of us who have expressed like uh, legit criticism and concerns about the way this has been managed we kind of get lumped in with the right-wing conspiracy theorists who think COVID is a scam mm. and it's been really hard to try and disentangle that with um oh you know you're just one you, you guys you don't believe in vaccines either that's like oh that that's not it yeah that is concerning when that's conflated because yeah. it's coming from a very different place from that. And yeah, it does worry me that there is that that's a lot of that's like quite prominent because they've um because yeah, if we don't bring up these critiques, that sort of gains more prominence, that sort of right wing conspiracy theorist uh, approach to understanding all the things the state of state and as you rightfully mentioned, like employers have messed up and being responsible for in terms of like the waves of the pandemic. Um, and going to sort of a question around commu- community and community care, do you see many examples of community care in your networks at this time or has the state 
made a lot of that quite difficult because of policing threats and what suggestions do you have for getting through this this, this time? Well, when I was in quarantine in March, uh, what really helped me was uh, my friends and also there was a, it's a clear mutual aid group based in Nam that you can ask for support and the moderators will help coordinate people to help. So I had like some someone who helped with my laundry, for example, because I didn't have a washing machine at the time and some people got me food, which I thought was really helpful. And I really appreciated that that was an avenue available to me. Um, when the stage three lockdowns happened, one thing that was actually pretty terrifying was that I have a bit of a health care. It turns out to be like an irritated nurse. Not a big deal at the end, but at the moment, I didn't know. Uh, so paramedics were called to my apartment and they checked out my vials and said, so your vitals seem to be okay and you're not like in urgent need of emergency care. We could still bring you there if you want or could you have a friend over and to observe your symptoms so that might be easier and also endless betrayal like, hey, if, if the police ask why there's people in your apartment, we're happy to be back up and provide evidence and I was like okay sure I'll try but nobody was willing to come and I even had people straight up refuse because they're like oh well the cops might come after me or and even you know even with saying Ambulance Victoria was willing to back us up people were still too afraid it's like oh you know that might get questioned or they might question you like it comes with the caregiving I don't care da, da, da. you know and, and just the attitude that everyone is too scared because what is cops it left me abandoned for like the whole night and for days after because you know it was my worst fear come true that if something really bad happened to me no one was willing or able to help because everyone is too scared of the cops and that's why it ended up to a point where I had to like move in and thankfully found a friend who was willing to be all you know what if the cops get to our case whatever this is important caregiving but the fact that they had to come down to people having to feel brave for defying the cops to provide care and that's such a messed up attitude to have to instill in people like this shouldn't be a matter of like oh we're going to be part of the revolution like no I'm just going to try and give you care why should this suddenly be such a revolutionary statement Mm -hmm. yeah that is highly concerning how that has put people off and it has been a real threat Um, we've seen so many fines for things that really are probably just people helping helping each other but the states that have criminalised like so many different things um, do you and have any- even with the definition, sorry, even the definition of like intimate partner, I remember my best friend and I having this discussion about whether we can because we're not likely to be sleeping together anytime soon. But we are also like each other's very important people and like we're emotionally intimate too. So remember the discussion being like, yeah, I guess, kind of. But it's like, how do you prove that? Like, do you need this little card for best friend is there, you know? And the assumption is like, oh, everyone has, like you mentioned, earlier in the conversation like everyone has a nuclear family they're living with or they have like um, romantic and sexual partner that they're committed to that will that that is like okay because you can prove it with like a wedding ring or something it says, yeah it's like the and the way the only time Dan Andrews himself has talked about friends it's like oh don't go see your be- friends for cheeky beers or as if that's the only reason a friend would ever want to see you it's like oh no friends are suspicious instead of hey sometimes that's the friends you really 
fun. Like I remember when I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? That's because that's where I was just before all the, I came home through all the lockdown. They had just started their own shelter in place too. But something they did say explicitly was that your helping friends and family is allowed. And I appreciated that explicitness. And I know the U.S. is a bit of a tire fire right now with COVID-19. But I, a part of me kind of wishes I was there instead because at least people helping each other out was very explicitly okay rather than here where it's feel like you find every loophole imaginable to You are listening to Tiara. You're listening to Queering Thea on 3CR Community Radio, hearing from guests on state punitive pandemic failures towards harm reduction and systemic change. Next, we hear from Hope. Um, I've worked in quarantine hotels. I've worked in pop-up testing, drive-through testing. I've worked in people's homes in aged care. I've worked in the hospitals um, one-on-one with patients in the scope of my practice and various other things. Uh, But before that, uh, I have a master's in public health and I've worked in various public health and health promotion uh, work before going back to uni uh, to do this nursing degree. So I guess I've got a few different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, definitely quite a few. Thanks for that, Hope. Um, And in terms of what we've been seeing, we've been seeing the state and media highlight people flatting the rules a lot, which has been potentially somewhat convenient when the state and more broadly capitalism itself is responsible for a litany of failures during the pandemic. Could you talk about the the learning and working conditions for nurses and people doing care work during the pandemic? This is a very complex issue and in some ways we've all been led to turn against each other, you know, all of this blame game when really what we have is is a situation where we've needed to work together more than ever. But those are the lines that are used. But when we see how how public health is is done, there's no harm minimization. By harm minimization, we mean ways to understand where people are coming from and to try and get them to be as safe as possible. Instead, there's just and 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 because of a of a lack of that, because you know of a lack of caring response, which is a public health response. We've just seen a lot of policing, a lot of blaming, and a lot of, there's a lack of transparency from different organizations. Now, there's, and there's a lot of people who, who, who suffer as a result of that, um, you know, frontline workers. And, you know, when people talk about frontline workers, it's interesting because nobody ever really thinks about nursing students and or carers or PCAs or cleaners and that sort of thing. But when they do think of carers, cleaners and PCAs or even security guards, there's there's this view that we are lesser than uneducated or something like that, when the real thing is that we're, we're under-resourced. And now there is... You know, in in this whole thing, I think that we've created there's also like a classism in it when when I know I've worked with all sorts of people and I think that I think that people who are flouting the rules and you know to me and I've said this in previous interviews a security guard is no different to a police officer in terms of their knowledge about PPE its proper use and and that sort of thing but on one hand when 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 this whole situation started and people were blaming security guards who weren't even to blame in the first place but 
but then thinking that policemen and cops were the solution when their numbers spiked too. But we never really talked about that. We never mm. really talked about the lack of, uh, you know, the commonalities in the two profession where they're not infection control specialists, like they're not public health people. Um, and it's in the same way where I've worked in workplaces where even even nurses and doctors, like they don't have, not everybody is an infectious disease expert. This is also the first time in a very long time that we faced um, a communicable disease. This is an illness that can be passed on easily from person to person, you know, not since HIV and AIDS and, and all that. And it's very interesting to see the ways in which Western countries, quote unquote, I'm putting that in air quotes, by the way, yeah. have adapted to this whole situation because I also think that the general nursing workforce and the general health workforce, there's, I, I know a lot of people who are anti-maskers, who are healthcare workers, who don't think that this is a big thing. Um, if you look at the kind of messaging that's being sent to third-year nursing students, you know, they are 18-year-olds. They think that they're, gonna, they're invincible and that sort of thing, and they're going to go in there and fight corona and intubate people, put them in ICU. And this is the, the idea that the general public has, like, go out there and do your job. But I have been doing the job. I've been going out into people's homes, and this is where community suffers because I want to be a community nurse. I also want recognition of prior learning. I am working at the moment, taking care of people who are too afraid to go to hospital. I'm out here helping to test people. You know, we're not lazy. We also still want to work. But there's all these hierarchies that have been created that make people want to blame and do this and do that. And we're just being pulled apart. At the moment, it's really weird. I'm getting all these messages from the Department of Health saying we need people to come and work in aged care that's got positive elderly residents in it. And they're like, we need people in aged care in the community. But on the other hand, I've got to do a couple of weeks of unpaid placement. And the hospitals have said, and the DHSS has said, um, students aren't allowed to work in um, aged care two weeks before um, starting un uh, unpaid placement. So that's whole six weeks of unpaid work. Now the real kicker is if we go in, there's, it's also, there's also a bit of secrecy and whatever. We don't get covered by insurance if we get COVID whilst on placement. And that's another complication on it. You know, we've seen this week the the, the actual nurses are trying to get uh, work cover reviewed for them. But where is something for us when we're working unpaid and people are saying you have to, but we're also burnt out because to make money, because we don't get any government support. On the other hand, we actually are working, most of us on the front line, but in these lower positions that people never really think about. You know, when we talk about frontline workers we're not talking about cleaners as well you know the you know the spotless crew who all stood up for each other we're not talking about people in precarious work and that and people in precarious work you know at least I'm luckier a little bit because I'm a citizen and maybe I can be covered by Medicare and that sort of thing but if you look at people like international students and other people on temporary visas it's even harder and 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 etc 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 and those people in those positions as well 
also happen to be people of color. Um, and also when you have students who are doing all of these jobs, obviously me moving around, being expected to go into unpaid work, but then expected to go into all these various other places of employment. I also worry on the other hand, infecting people that, that I work with unknowingly. Mm -hmm. So there's also that conundrum. And, and it's like, well, if I do infect them unknowingly, we know how quickly the media can, can turn on people. Um, you know, for, for, for things that are that are structural and um, and and instead of I don't know instead of supporting people it's just a mess that that's full of layers of hierarchy classism um, you know racism um, and and definitely uh, ableism and definitely everything else yeah thanks to that and even when we look at we're seeing more of the revelations around the hotel quarantine and really the state and DHS Department of Human Health and Human Services not having adequate guidelines and whatever, but we're still seeing the me the, me the media sort of focus on security guards and ideas of like patient zero and like family, I know, like family zero or whatever, these kind of um, really individualized understandings of what's gone wrong. And thanks for highlighting a lot of those, um, those connections to the big, bigger like structural things going on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, do you think, so you're sort of saying that like bosses and institutions of the state, institutions like the state and um, universities are potentially sh are showing a disregard for precarious workers. Would you say that's yes. the case? Yes. Just passing the buck, handing the problem from here to here to here to there. And the guidelines always keep changing, like, you know, as we're speaking today and the media always reports on more of the fun and silly stuff, sort of, uh, you know, what we've seen today about if you go out to exercise, can you drive to the to the place even if it's within five kilometers radiuses you know what i'm saying and and those uh, lockdown you know uh, stage four lockdowns having sort of been worked on a number of times they've got time to play around with that but then directives to students only come out after we've maybe asked questions it wasn't until maybe about a fortnight three weeks ago that we found out that we wouldn't be covered if we got COVID. Mm. but COVID's been around since March and I've done a placement since COVID was a possible threat and that was during the first wave when we were trying to ask questions but you know we were given no answers. I've got you know friends, classmates now who are in um, ED as I said but they are just given the surgical masks but then only upgraded to the uh, N95s if they're actually with someone with COVID but in an ED someone could be rushed past you who could still have COVID. So it still doesn't really make any sense. Everybody is just doing what they want. And, and depending on what hospital you're in, what university you go to, you know, you've been given a message a bit too late. You know, there was one student who was due to start placement on Monday, and we were only given a, a sector-wide email only the week before that you can't work for two weeks before going on placement. And so also the rate at which information is being passed out, whether it's 
contact tracing that the DHSS is doing or, or, or sending out the email that the DHSS apparently wrote, but then why are we getting it very late? What is going on here and who is in charge? And that is the story wherever you go. It was the story in the hotel quarantine and it's the story now with us. And it's the story in so many other sectors and precarious, you know, workplaces. I'm only just talking about the student and, and mm. PCA experience because this is the one that I most understand. But you see that with the cleaning crews, you see that, and I wonder what cleaners are going through. I have no idea, but I'm sure yeah. they're going through a terrible time. Mm. Um, and so it's really interesting. And um <sighs> I, I, I don't really know what to say, Iris, about what can be done because it's it's such a complicated thing that comes from, you know, because of the way things were created before, the privatization of all these organizations, the way that they don't talk to each other and the way that they're not linked up, things take a long time to either get done or to be passed on for the information to be passed on. And half the people, and as it trickles down, the confusion then sort of spreads and spreads and spreads and we become more fearful. Um, but yeah. then but then we're punished as well. We're punished. And, and I know that people who are doing the wrong thing are also up at the top just as they are at the bottom. Mm. But, um, you know, I think that fining people and all this stuff that and the over policing that's happening is also not the right way to go and um it's it's quite interesting uh the messaging and the confusion in the messaging mm. overall uh whichever institution it comes from picking up your points in terms of yeah talking some more about policing the pandemic and yeah like pointing towards obviously there's a lot of big structural stuff but pointing towards a more harm reduction approach than this punitive approach there's many aspects to it. I mean, first, I just want to point out that as we're speaking as well, we saw the Black Lives Matter rally happen here in, in Nam in Melbourne. And the organizers there, if I'd, I, I was on live stream, so they made, they said, if you work on the front lines and can't go, like supporting Black Lives Matter doesn't even mean going to the protest. You can, they made a live stream of it. They, that's one harmonization thing, to, trying to get people to support even if it wasn't in person, but also for people to show up. So that whole definition of, of showing up, just being broad and wide. Um, but they linked up with health services, made sure that people got the appropriate PPE and sanitizer and did things in a staggered sort of way um to 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 really protect people um they protected immunocompromised people um and other people living with chronic illness and disability again vulnerable people and afterwards there was also a directive for people to isolate for the 14 days there were support groups for people to help each other with food or anything else that they needed um if they um you know if they needed something in in this isolation and people have really been there for each other in the southeastern suburbs i know people have been there for each other now in the second wave have been there for each other in terms of escaping family violence um, and and all these and all these other wonderful wonderful things. You are listening to Hope. You can follow her Twitter at the handle Hopey Two Shoes.
You're listening to Queering the Art on 3CR Community Radio, hearing from guests on punitive pandemic state failures towards harm reduction and systemic change. Next, we hear from Polly. I am a researcher and academic. Um, I'm one of the casualised academics, along with 70% of the workforce um, at the university that I mainly work at. Um, so, which has also meant I've been able to work from home. So I am really grateful for that. Um, personally, I am currently single and I live alone. Um, and I live in a block of flats in the inner west. Um, and I live in a block as well with neighbours who are also um, precarious workers. Yeah, starting up off there, picking up some of the politics of the home, we've seen a lot of assumptions made in restrictions around this idea that everyone lives in this white normative nuclear family and in terms of that being a safe space and in terms of visitors only having intimate partners as the only visitor. Um, and that and we've, we've seen that ignores a lot of people who rely on support structures not centred around the home and we're seeing a lot of significant psychological distress. Do you want to unpack some of the assumptions made by the government in its restrictions and how you've been navigating these things in the pandemic? Yeah, as I said, I live alone, but I have very close um, chosen family um, and I am close to some of my bio family as well. My bio family live in Geelong. Um, I am a regular carer um, of my niece, so already um, that kind of acknowledgement of the role of um, an auntie or an uncle, um, particularly amongst queer communities, in taking care of nieces and nibblings and nephews. And, you know, I also have close connections with the children of lots of friends of mine. Um, and under these restrictions, I'm, I, I'm not allowed to visit them. They're not allowed to visit me. Um, in addition to that, I am not in uh, in an intimate partnership with anyone at the moment, but I have very close friends. I consider them family. And early on during the pandemic, um, we had conversations. We, you know, we had the responsible conversations about how we could manage interaction. Um, I have health risks associated with my asthma and um, a tendency to get quite severe viral-induced chest infections. Um, And a couple of my friends have their own quite serious health risks as well. And so we had a conversation very early on about how we could create cross-household family connections still. Um, So we had rules around that, around um, letting each other know before visiting whether or not we'd been out and about, and if so, had we had any interactions with other people or had there been 14 days between um, us seeing other people out in the public or not. And then on the basis of that, we were arranging visits to each other um, occasionally, and that, it's it's amazing. I mean, anyone who doesn't live solo do, probably doesn't quite realise the dramatic impact of just being able to visit someone else occasionally, even if it's only once a month, um, to see someone else who's in the same room as you, that you can hug, um, that you can just have a conversation with free of a um, computer screen. So, 
Then when the latest round of stage three restrictions came in and now stage four, um, none of that was allowed. So technically mm. at the moment, it's illegal for me to hug anyone. Um, mm. Yeah, and I just, <laughs> it's such a bizarre circumstance to be in. And in addition to that, you mentioned how white it is. I mean, I'm white myself, um, but, you know, my neighbours are not. <laughs> They're migrant workers, they're people of colour, um, they're living in cross-household families sometimes or like my neighbours, there's three living in the apartment next door to me and they're, they're, they are their household family um, and these restrictions are, ha- are impeding the ability for people to maintain the kind of absolutely necessary social bonds that we have through our um, friendships and family. And for me, my friends are my family. Like, I make no distinction. Mm. Yeah, for sure. It would seem that this sort of blanket approach is sort of undermining the various strategies communities are like making trying to do trying to make themselves in terms of managing the risks of the pandemic and like a harm reduction sort of approach rather than one a blanket one that's creating all sorts of unnecessary harm yeah i totally agree with that i think that's right i think it's about harm reduction that's the approach we should be taking um, and we should be empowering people to make some of those decisions ourselves over our lives and our bodies and our social interactions. Um, we're human beings. Um, we require social interaction. It's not, um, you know, isolation and long-term isolation is a form of torture. And I'm not saying that what I'm going through is a form of torture. I still have a comfortable home. I still have a cat that I can cuddle. However, <coughs> um yeah, not being able to visit my friends again. Um, and also recently the ruling came out that um, we are allowed to see one other person in public for a walk. But in some cases, people aren't within a radius, a five-kilometre radius of their friend or their family. Um, so that's a really harsh restri- restrictions. I much prefer the um, – in New Zealand, they had a different model and they acknowledged that those who were living solo – could nominate a person and that could be their person that could effectively be their family person and it could be anyone and that person was allowed to visit their home and vice versa and so as a single person or solo person you could become part of someone else's family bubble um, or part of your other solo friends bubble and that that was totally legal and I think the current restrictions are impeding the ability of even people like myself and my friends who have high health risks from being able to manage those health health risks in a way that's suitable and that, you know, that makes sense and that does reduce harm. Mm, yeah. And, and picking up a bit on what's happening in the media, we're seeing a lot of emphasis on individual rule breakers and many restrictions that seemed aimed, about, seemed aimed at making policing easier rather than tackling pandemic necessarily um and this is at the same time that more and more failures of business and systemic state failures failures are being exposed and we're even seeing wildly exaggerated statistics in terms of police putting police and the andrew state government putting out that a third of people are breaking isolation and then weeks later we find out that it's only 0.8 percent and of course we don't know the factors involved in those those people who have got really huge fines um 
And in addition to that, we're seeing um, workplace inspections and notices at rates of like hundreds compared to the thousands of fines of individuals. So how should we understand what the big factors are that are exacerbating this pandemic and how can we be conscious of the strategies employed here to, to deflect responsibility? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Iris. Um, I'm also, as a casualised worker, I'm a member of um, a national network of academic and university workers who are part of a casualised, unemployed and precarious university worker network. Um, and we're thousands. I mean, as I mentioned before, we're about, uh, depending on which university you're at, we're about 60 to 80% of the university sector. And we held a forum last weekend where we had a cross-sector discussion as well, opening up discussions with the United Workers Union, with the Unemployed Workers Union, um, with um, the Migrant Workers Centre about what is happening for precariously employed workers in other sectors as well, because we're very aware that a lot of the precariously employed, both in the university sector where I am, but also way beyond the university sector and in essential industries such as food production and distribution and retail, so especially in farming in this country, um, there are a lot of migrant workers who not only are precariously employed and have to deal with the, um, you know, the underpayment, the wage theft, the insecurity of employment, but in addition to that, don't have access to JobKeeper and don't have access to JobSeeker. So literally do not have an ability to be able to say, okay, I may have um, contracted coronavirus. I'm going to go get tested. I'm going to stay home for two weeks because they may not have a job to come back to. And in fact, it's not may not. We know. We know the figures. Mm. Um, the hundreds of thousands of migrant workers have lost jobs and 30,000 university workers are losing their jobs at the moment in the university sector because we also don't have access to JobKeeper. This is the real health risk. And so in terms of what we need to be doing. I mean, we need to be listening to the people who are already raising this repeatedly. We need to, instead of listening to the police, providing phony reports. I mean, I just think, yeah, why we were listening to them in the first place. But yeah, now that we know that they exaggerated the number of people breaking quarantine, we should just reject their reports. And instead, we should be listening to the unions covering the workers who are in highly risky work, um, who have been repeatedly saying that we need a guaranteed income for all. That's the, that's the social policy that's required in order to reduce risk and that um, workplaces should be shut down um, when they breach the current COVID-19 rules. Why is it that an individual like myself, who until yesterday when the rule was updated, if I drove to a park between myself and my closest friend, because we had to, because we live a couple of kilometres away from each other, we would have technically been breaking the law and would have been hit with a $1,600 fine if caught. And yet a workplace, a warehouse, so from Coles to Woolworths, the two major supermarkets in this country, they have had multiple warehouse breaches of health and safety and hundreds of cases of COVID-19 in their warehouses and forced a return to work before workers were ready and before the site was properly safe. 
Um, we have Spotless as well, who's had multiple breaches of OCH health and safety laws to the point where workers who are precariously employed are now just walking off site. They're just walking off site um, saying, it's, you know, my life is not worth the risk here. Um, they shouldn't have to make a choice between their life and a job or their life and an income. It's not a choice. So we should be um, the, you know, we should be supporting union unionists and workers working offsite. There should be a guaranteed income for all, regardless of our employment situation or our, you know, accidental visa status. Um, the yeah, so that's why I would argue that the the current laws are punitive unnecessarily. They're interfering with our ability to manage our own lives. Um, they're and they're racist um, and they're queerphobic um, for the reasons that we mentioned earlier. Because there are many different forms of families and social networks that we require on to live. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. That's yeah. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> picking up some more on the policing, the pandemic approach of the Andrews government, uh, where it remits very significant police powers, state of disaster legislation, and with really no mechanisms for accountability. And we already know the police, as you said, um, enforce the law in terms of white supremacy, ableism, classism, transphobia, queerphobia, and more. Um, What's what's the impact you're seeing of policing around where you live and, and your networks in terms of the fear it's creating and that and whether that's contributing potentially to things like people not wanting to get tested um, and in terms of creating more stigma around the virus? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, I live in um, a block of apartments and it's part of many blocks of apartments in the inner west. Um, and what I'm seeing is, for example, my neighbours now being even too afraid to walk, to go for their full daily walk, and they're just walking around the block of apartments, which in itself creates its, I mean, I completely support, but creates its own risk because we're um, all 18 blocks are on this fairly small block of land. Um, it would be much safer if people felt more comfortable walking out into the streets in the parks nearby. Um, it's creating fear about, yeah, getting tested. So uh, some of my neighbours uh, work in the highly casualised hotel industry. They did work um, at one point at Stanford Hotel. Um, they're not security. They're just service staff. Um, but, yeah, it's not just security that's casualised. It's, you know, it's the entire hospitality and hotel industry that's casualised these days. So they're all labour hire. Um, and their manager, it's not only fear, but their managers were even telling them not to get tested. They're like, no, 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 you don't need to get tested. We don't want you to get tested because then we, we can't employ you. <laughs> mm. You are listening to Polly and you're tuned in to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, hearing from guests on state perjunitive pandemic failures towards harm reduction and systemic change. Next, we hear from Star Lady. Star Lady, I identify as a, as trans feminine and my pronouns are she and her. Uh, yeah, I think that I'm a community activist. I've been working within the LGBTIQ community for, you know, a long time. I'm very passionate about um, lots of different things, pathologization, <laughs> uh, addressing discrimination, creating equity within it for our community. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, so we'll start 
first talking a bit about the restrictions. How have you found navigating some of the assumptions around how the restrictions are formed around like uh, white cis hat nuclear family? And because we're seeing a lot of psychological psychological distress because of the rules around no hangout even with one friend and that sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's impacted um, – I mean, it's highly impacted me and it's highly impacted my, you know, my friends and community, you know, around me in many different ways. I mean, the first one is that I guess there some of the – you know, some of the uh, lockdown laws and associated carceral response, including things like the sort of like – the, uh, the the hotlines to report people uh, if they breach COVID um, regulations has been very, you know, some of that is very stressful because already if you're a part of a m- marginalised community, you have m- members of society policing you or discriminating against you. And so hearing that, you just get really worried. It creates a level of stress in and around people going, oh, are my neighbours going to report on me? Are they going to, you know, are they going to use that as a tool to oppress and discriminate against me? And I have heard of LGBTI people, fr- friends of friends, who act, whose neighbours were using the COVID um, hotlines to report on them and to, um, and to, you know, harass them. And so these lines, I think, you know, when we create these sorts of lines, they can be used as tools to oppress marginalised communities. Also, it's really, you know, some of it is really stressful. In the trans and gender diverse community, nearly one in two, half of us have, you know, at some point, um, uh, you know, attempted suicide. And so suicidality mm. is a really big issue. Our community has enormous levels of psychological distress because of discrimination and stigma. And, you know, in the lockdown and the isolation, we're already highly isolated community. It further compounds the issues, uh, you know, the mental health issues that our experiencing, our community experiences, especially as many of the sort of like community mental health services have been like shut, have been shut down or have been limited in terms of how you can access those like face to face counselling. And the government's response has been trying to move things, the face-to-face things, to more tertiary services. So they're trying to call it, get us to call the cat, cat, you know, the cat team, or the hospitals. Mm. But those are the services that are historically incredibly abusive and unsafe for the trans and gender diverse community to access. I feel the government is so out of touch with trans and gender diverse people's experiences. And this is really, they're sort of these blanket rules that are made for everyone. Is not made? It's made for cis and, you know, cis heterosexual white people. You know, I would say like broadly and many other marginalised communities can really suffer when we sort of like have uh, blanket rules. And so I know that my mental health has incredibly decreased during this because of, you know, a- access to isolation. I also know that some of my friends during this time have become suicidal because of the lockdown laws and the stress associated with those lockdown laws and being isolated. And we also know that um, I guess there is clauses within the lockdown laws in and around providing care. But I feel like the government has been deliberately so vague with those that it's up to interpretation of whether that includes mental, I mean, it says mental health support, but what does that mean? Can we actually provide peer-based support one-on-one to, to our peers 
if they're experiencing poor mental, high psychological distress or suicidality. And so it comes to when you're going, you have to make choices. Am I prepared to risk a fine or am I prepared to risk my friend's life? We shouldn't be having to, you know, Mm. that's stressful. That is unacceptable, so unacceptable and so stressful. And I've been in that situation where I'm like, my friend, they're talking about completing suicide, you know, I, and I'm going the out of my five-kilometre area. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to risk that fine. But then you are so stressed in doing that, and it creates a level of distress and trauma. And I think we, I have been advocating to the DHHS that they change their, and change their sort of um, the lockdown requirements and that they're much more clear and they acknowledge the space for peer support where where we can't access the, you know, the, uh, the acute mental health services or, you know, the police. And when it comes to, because um, it, it, in, in the end, it goes back to police discretion. And I'm sorry, but the trans and gender diverse and LGBTI community, many of us, not the privileged within our community, but many of the more marginalised parts of our communities have had, and we've had historic abuses, but we continue to experience horrible oppression by the police and that they, the police often will use laws to, you know, harass us. We're less likely to be believed. We're less likely to be supported. And so it makes you really sort of stressed going out. Am I going to be targeted? You know, and I think that creates a high level of distress in the community and it's incredibly unfair and is harmful, incredibly harmful towards our community. For sure. Just just it boggles the mind, all the harm going on from this blanket carceral response. Response. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to be clear that I am 100% behind a strong health response that's based upon human right, you know, human rights. You know, there are many things that we need to do to minimise the risk of COVID-19 that we should be doing. But when you turn it into a castle response, it it does impact certain communities and has adverse impacts on, upon their sort of like mental health and well-being, including I think it puts people off getting tested. Like I go, for me, why would I go and get tested if I was sick? I'd probably isolate at home and try not to see anyone, well, not see anyone for two weeks and get a friend to drop off groceries. I do not want the police or the army knocking on my door. That terrifies me. It's a frightening response. If it was health services turning up and going, hey, how can we support you? That would be very different. I'd be open to it. But once you involve the police and the army for marginalised communities, we tend to get um, feel really intimidated, unsafe, and then that impacts the health response and actually pushes people in the opposite direction than where the government wants to, to go. Because the government wants us to be tested, the government wants us to be safe, but, but if you use the police and the army to do that, people will be frightened and they won't go and access like health services. I think health services have got a really big um, um, level of responsibility to challenge the castle response. I think health services have really failed our community Mm. and many other marginalised communities because sometimes they've been the ones asking for the castle response when you're thinking this is coming from the chief health medical officer and other people. And it's like, where are you failing? How to work with marginalised communities? And I think when we saw 
you know, uh, some of the response to the flats, to the people in the um, public housing towers, that was just terrifying. I mean, obviously that was impacting migrants and people of colour more, but it was also class. It's people who don't have as, uh, the wealth as other people do in our society. And when you see the government, you know, just locking them up straight away, not providing them care. And I mean, I work with people through my work who worked at those flats. And I heard the horrific stories of abuse and failure, the systematic failure that happened. And it was totally built within racism and classism. And when you see that, it frightens you. The government is frightening me with its sort of like carceral health response. And that has an impact. And I've definitely heard other people go, oh, my partner's, you know, a refugee or my partner's a migrant. They wouldn't get tested now after we've seen how they've responded to our um, communities. And so I think it creates incredible risk and it's a really poor uh, health response. I also think, like, for me... Um, I've got many friends who come from, who are migrants, who are, you know, trans people who are migrants or who are refugees and asylum seekers, and the lockdown laws have totally locked them out of any work and any income whatsoever. And it's been mm. horrific as this goes on for months and months and months. The pitiful response to the government, and they're going hungry, their bills can't be paid, their rent's not being paid, the stress that is on their community is enormous. I've done things like, you know, I've raised like thousands of dollars on Facebook, you know, from my community. I love my community that they're willing to respond, you know, because we're talking about community-based responses where the system is failing, the government is failing, the services that are funded to support people are failing, and then it falls back onto community. And so I've raised that I've, you know, helped pay people's rents and bonds. I know that lots of other people have contributed to that. We have lots of mutual aid programs going on, and they, they are essential you know, in providing care. But it also puts an enormous pressure on community to have to be, you know, to try and provide what the government should be doing in, in terms of paying people's rents, providing them food. Like, people are going hungry. How is this acceptable in our society? And if you're calling for this, like, quite severe and long-term lockdown, I hope you're also equally feeding those people, paying their bills. And, you know, because they're not getting job seeker, they're not getting job keeper. And if we, and we need to be providing these people long-term care if we continue to have, like, this lockdown because it's not all right to let them starve and let them to undergo incredible financial stress, which obviously impacts people's mental health, yeah, and well-being. For sure, yeah. Thanks for all that. Yeah, like so many significant issues with this response so you mentioned in terms of like health services failing in terms of advocating for carceral responses do you think we're seeing enough from lgbti 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 organizations in terms of pressuring the government to amend this response and especially given the history of harm reduction in terms of queer and trans <laughs> and intersex people against um like organizing to minimise harm and, and transmission of HIV AIDS, are we seeing enough in this area? No, I think, I mean, it's very hard. I think many of our LGBTI ser services have failed us during during this time. It's very hard, I think, there because here, at least in Australia, 
philanthropic funding is much less. You know, there's a lot less philanthropic. A lot of the funding for running our services comes from the government and there is a really complicit relationship between LGBTI services and the Victorian state government, and in particular with the Labor Party. And when Daniel Andrews is having a hardline response, I think it creates challenges for LGBTI organisations to then to speak up and to speak up and going, actually, hey, this isn't okay, this is harming our communities, because it, it will, you know, I don't know, it impacts their funding. If we're just being honest and we're being transparent, that's what's going on. But I do think many, not all, but many of our LGBTI services have really failed. You saw that in the original response to um, to COVID-19 and that when we saw um, LGBTI services put out uh, responses to COVID and none of it inc- included any information about, hey, are you worried about being harassed by the police? This is where you can go and get legal support. <laughs> are you worried about your neighbour using uh, uh, reporting mechanisms to harass you? These are sort of really big, you know, issues. And uh, and we have we certainly haven't seen them push back to sort of go, hey, we are part of a really marginalised community whose mental health is really sort of impacted and is being compounded by this and to have them to advocate for like peer-based, one-on-one peer-based support. Like we'd need like, you know, that and, you know, teach us how to like what we can do if we do need to go. Someone is experiencing having uh, suicidal issues. How can you go and see them? And what are the sort of harm minimisation approach that you can do to minimise risk of transmission, but also to keep them safe. That's the sort of resource that we need to see coming out. And I don't think we've really seen that come out by the vast majority of our LGBTI services. You just heard from Star Lady and you have reached the end of today's program and crewing the air on 3CR Community Radio. And you've heard from four guests on the punitive pandemic failures towards harm reduction and systemic change. I'm thankful for Tiara, Hope, Pauly and Star Lady for their time and all their insights. You can look out for the podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air for more of those interviews. And it's not enough just to think abstractly about systemic change. There's mutual aid in the here and now. So also want to shout out to mutual aid projects, First Nations Mutual Aid Funds, Gallaud Alliance Supporting Workers, Emergency Fund, Rise Refugee and Ex-Detainees Supporting Their Community and IRL Info Shop doing grocery boxes for people in need at the moment which I also have a small involvement in and I'll put links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in to Queering the Air. Next up is Salam Radio Show. Bye, until next week. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on queeraidmelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook.
COVID-19 Queer Aid NAM Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.